0: Most companies would proclaim to be customer centric, but most companies would be lying to themselves.
1: This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing.
2: If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman.
1: And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Reveal. How's it going, Danny?
2: Karina, it's great to see you. Every time we get to have these episodes, it just gives me all the warm and fuzzy. So I'm stoked. And another reason, in addition just to seeing you back in the studios, up because hopefully the title of this episode really caught your eye. We've got a dynamic guest joining us on this episode to share what could only be described as a masterclass on crafting a billion-dollar pitch with a capital B. Yes, capital B, Brendan Dell is the creator of the course, you guessed it, The Billion-Dollar Pitch, where he teaches go-to-market leaders the, count it, eight predictable elements to every tech unicorn's success story. In this podcast, we talk all the time about codifying, demystifying, unpacking, what is the formula to success? Well, Brendan's going to unlock billion-dollar success for you and how you can apply those elements to your own company. Karina, you're going to have to get me up to speed on this conversation. I was bummed to miss this Gold Goose opportunity.
1: I really enjoy chatting with Brendan. He really, as like a lot of our guests, I think in the past couple of episodes, really understands the importance of being truly customer-centric which companies can claim to be, but it really becomes obvious once you know said buyer enters the process and sees how truly customer-centric they are. So a lot of what Brennan is going to unpack is what are those eight steps and what can companies of all different sizes, as well as you know, how can they handle this in a climate that we're in at the moment, how can they get to that billion-dollar sale? So I'm very excited for you guys to hear that. We also talked a lot about Like the emotional aspect of selling. And I don't think that that's talked about enough. We really geeked out a little bit over this. And it's a stat that I want to share with you guys. I I talk about it in the episode, but I wasn't able to quote it. But this comes from a Harvard professor, Gerald Zaltzman. And he says that it's been proven over studies that 95% of all purchasing decisions come from an emotional connection. So think about that, right? And you'll you're start to understand in this episode too from Brendan, so much about those different steps that Danny alluded to are going to have an emotional connection or component to it. So I'm so excited. I can't wait for you guys to hear what he has to say.
2: Oh my God. Let's crank it up to 11. Let's get tactical. Let's get emotional. Let's cover the entire end of the human experience. Take it away.
1: Brendan, welcome to Reveal. We're so happy to have you here.
2: Cheers. Thanks for having me.
1: So I think you are immediately going to capture everybody's attention when they hear this. The Billion Dollar Pitch Masterclass. (laughs) Quite a name. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. You are the founder. How how did this come about?
0: Yeah. So I've spent the last 10 years doing uh, messaging, positioning, and go-to-market strategy for early-stage companies. And foundational element of that is how do you tell the story, right? How how are you going to tell the story of a company? Because there's, there's a lot of products. I mean, talking to Gong here, who's like the master of doing this, right? Like that, you know, you guys understand the importance of storytelling. Um, And there's a lot of products that do similar things um, in similar ways. The markets are getting more and more crowded. So how are you going to stand out? And what I did uh, is I started to dissect what do billion dollar companies do what does slack do what is what does gong do right like what does salesforce do what did data domain do what do all the unicorns do to tell their story and then what have i learned from working with you know more than 100 companies now to launch lots of these brands um and what you find is in these stories there's predictable elements eight predictable elements that you see in nearly all of them and that was the catalyst for this you know how do you help people to figure out the, you know how the elements that they need to to define for their business so that they can have clarity not only for the market for their employees you know their product team their go to market teams everyone so they understand the vision in the world that they're trying to create
1: you mentioned eight steps in particular even at just the highest level can you walk us through what those eight steps are
0: so we can talk about the eight steps and I think it's kind of worthwhile to put this in context for what's happening right now because I think what we're seeing right now, you know, this trend over the next 12 months, especially in tech and if you set if you're tech that sells to tech, we're seeing VCs pull back, we're seeing markets consolidate, we're seeing more rigor around purchases, we're seeing more rigor around usage, we're seeing more scrutiny around spend around new projects generally and so I think taking these elements through the lens of what's happening right now is useful. Uh, so the first thing that I would say is a lot of the questions I'm getting right now are from people who are saying, how do we be more efficient with what we're doing right now? How do we get our focus? How do we make sure that the dollars we are investing, you know, if we think people aren't buying or we're having a harder time selling, what what do we do? And the first step in this for everyone all the time, no matter the market, is getting crystal clear around who it is you're selling to. And this sounds like an obvious piece of advice, but it's something that you you don't see people do. The more you can hone in on who is the ideal customer and then what are their jobs to be done and the pains associated with those jobs. Not just a sort of a nice to have or a thing that you might do or a thing that would be cool if, but the things they have to do, the pain associated with those things and then how you intersect the more successful you know, people are going to be in this current environment.
1: Yeah, I really love what you're saying there because I think that that is often the biggest miss is kind of that emotional sales aspect that you're talking about. I can't remember where I read this. I've heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I can believe it. 95% of all purchasing decisions take place due to an emotional connection. So, Talk to me a little bit about that more. Like, why are we missing that so often?
0: First of all, when you you look at targeting, like even so before the emotional part, like who are we going to sell this to? There's this sort of desire with technology where people will create this thing and they can see all these use cases and all these potential places where it might add utility to someone's life. And... Especially over the last few years, where capital has been so abundant, there's been this idea that let's just go as big and as fast as we can and let's hit all these people and let's show all the use cases. But what you find is when you peel back the layers and actually look at the revenue of most companies, there's an 80 20 relationship with revenue that, you know, there's some small segment that's driving the overwhelming majority of the success and they're burning a lot of um, resources inefficiently targeting these other folks. And of course, the broader you are in your targeting, the less efficient your sales is going to be, right? It, it's, your messaging has to be evolved for every single market. Your salespeople are going to be less efficient at selling if they don't understand that persona and that pain properly. You know, all of the things lose efficiency over time. So part of the reason we're losing the emotional element is because we don't understand that people were selling too well enough. And that creates disconnect. And one of the things that you called out is that people buy 95% on emotion. And... There's a ton of research around this. And even in B2B, there's a study that was done called the Long and the Short of It, uh, by some guys named Field and Benet, And they looked at B2B marketing effectiveness. And what they found was optimizing for fame of all the effects, right? Like they looked at how much brand should you do versus direct response. How, you know, what what resulted in largest market share, largest all these things. And then what kind of outcomes do you want to optimize for in terms of feature benefit, in terms of, you know, et cetera? And what they found was. Fame, optimizing for fame, meaning like gong, right, is revenue intelligence. Everyone believes that everyone sees you as the leader. And so the emotional decision becomes, I don't want to look bad to my peers at work. I want to make a defensible decision. So I'm going to buy the category leader. That's the emotional thing in B2B is I just want to buy the people who are doing this best. Or you're the skeptical buyer who says, I just want to buy the lowest cost one. Two different buyers, two different approaches, but you're still optimizing for emotion no matter what, right?
1: A hundred percent. So how would you say, since there's so much out there, right, uh, on frameworks and sales methodology, what makes your course so different?
0: So the way we're evolving this right now for the current market is getting uber focused on the jobs to be done. What we saw five years ago was this move towards strategic initiatives. People were looking and saying, how do we aspirationally improve to be the best at what we do? And how is the world shifting, right? That makes it an imperative to do that and these kinds of things, right? And what we're seeing right now is how do we get laser focused on who are we for? How do we help? And how are we uniquely qualified to do so in a way that others can't? And, the thing that we're doing that other people are not doing is getting laser focused on these jobs to be done. Somebody said to me in my podcast, which is called billion dollar tech. Gentleman's name is Tony Jimu, who founded Oyster HR. And he was saying there's too many technologies out there. that are solutions looking for problems. And I think that's absolutely the case. And so people are like, Oh, but my thing is so cool. And it does this and it does that, especially early stage. And nobody cares about how cool t- your tech is, right? Like they just want to know what it's going to improve for them and how you get clarity on those jobs to be done and create an intersection of what's unique about your product is where you really start to see see the wins.
1: I think that's an excellent point. And uh, to your point, buyers are more risk adverse than ever. And it's becoming how can sellers reduce risk for their buyers?
0: I think part of this is like, what do we think workplaces of the future will look like? And how do we start to paint that picture? And Here's what I'm seeing happen. And I'll take um, finance departments because that's something top of mind because I was working on some recommendations for a client earlier today. And finance departments, right? You have this historical structure where you had you know, executives at the top making decisions and then you, ha- you go down and you have people doing analysis, right? And they're working in spreadsheets, coming up with analysis and doing recommendations. Now extrapolate out three to five years. You're going to have smaller teams in nearly every department You're going to have AI doing more and more of the analysis, and you're going to have people that are basically looking at the analysis that they're given, drawing conclusions, making recommendations, and pushing execution and project management. But these departments are all going to consolidate and get smaller. So how do you make your thing a must-have? You show people that they can not only maintain their impact as a department, but expand their impact as a department by investing in this technology, and you. It's not that you want to see people lose jobs. Of course, no one wants to see that. But there's an inevitability around how this is going to happen and how do you repurpose people to their highest and best use so they can be the biggest you know, drivers for their organization. And I think for every department, you're going to see increasingly those kinds of shifts. So how do you enter into those jobs that can and will be automated in a way that you can free up that strategic bandwidth?
1: I love that. And I do think that people are going to come in and then kind of take the uh, the other side of it, which is the human element, right? Like, oh, my job's going to be replaced. So I think I wonder from a salesperson's perspective, what do you think they would be find most surprising? or counterintuitive about your masterclass or your philosophy here?
0: Most companies would proclaim to be customer centric, but most companies would be lying to themselves or many companies would be lying to themselves. And I will meet with many marketing teams, many executive teams where the contact with customers is a fraction of what it should be if it's there at all. The teams do not clearly understand The jobs to be done for these people what their day looks like what their cape you know they understand in abstractions like oh marketers want to drive more leads right that's a huge abstraction of what the day of a marketer looks like and how they're really thinking of their job and what they have to do in that job so the i don't know that it's counterintuitive but i think the most important thing is the level of depth of understanding you need to develop about your customers and this is why a lot of people will default to running experiments, right? What's going to work? And they start to ship. Whereas I think step one is to narrow your focus and to really get clear around how can you get, especially right now, even more clear around who you're going to help. There is a human element to this, right? That are people going to, to lose their jobs. But the um, the reality is, is that one, normally the people you're talking to in buying cycles, that, that's not those people. And two... It's not about people losing their jobs. It's about repurposing that effort on higher value tasks. Like if a machine can do the Excel calc, why would you spend your time doing it? Like you, there are other higher value things you can do. So how do you continue to make yourself irreplaceable? Let the tool, you know, just the same way that like, you know, you wouldn't sit and build a fire to cook your food, right? The job to be done is heat the food you put it in the microwave. Let the thing do the thing, you know. Let the tool do the thing, and spend your time in higher value ways.
1: What do you think we can do to even just get the field more comfortable with that notion? Because it's so obvious and the data tells us that. There's so much reports around this. We're just not always listening to the customer. How can we effectively communicate this to the people that are almost holding themselves back from adopting this approach?
0: Yeah, it's got to come from leadership, right? And it has to to come down that. The expectation is it's not extra or a waste of time or, you know, in the past, like in consulting engagements, I've turned down projects because people were like, well, we don't want to speak with customers. We just want to jump right into it. And I'm like, you know, that's like me saying like, let's, you want me to draw you a map? Where do you want to go? I'm not sure. I just want to go somewhere. Like you have no North Star without the information from customers. So it's got to come from leadership who says, if we are not the most customer-centric organization with specificity of who what problem we solve and how we're uniquely qualified to do so. And if we are not closer to our customers than everyone else, we are going to lose to the people that are. And so it becomes then imperative from leadership that these conversations need to be happening, that the observation needs to be happening. And by the way, it doesn't need to be individual. There's with t- technology now, there's a million ways to you know, have people record calls, to use things like user testing, to to record insights from customers. There's a million ways to bring people close to customers. I've seen people do this in group presentations, right? Where like, you know, it's like product marketing. We'll do a weekly update. Some of them are bi-weekly, whatever it is, monthly. But yeah, the short answer is leadership has to decide that it's a priority. Otherwise, it's an uphill battle for everyone else.
2: Wait a minute. Brendan's talking about something that sounds a lot like value selling. Value selling is a sales methodology that focuses on what the customer wants and needs. You might compare that to solution selling, which is all about selling what your product can do. But there's tons of data around value-based selling having the upper hand. We just cited this over on our Gong blog not that long ago. Here's the stat. 87% of high growth companies adopt value-based sales compared to just 45% of negative growth companies. Pretty compelling stuff if you ask me. All right, let's dive back in and hear more from our star, Brendan Dell.
1: Tell me a little bit more about why you decided to name your masterclass the Billion Dollar Pitch Masterclass.
0: Because it's taking the practices of billion-dollar companies and bringing them to all of us. So these are the commonalities when you look through when you look through these investor decks, sales decks, and so forth. You see again and again the same kinds of best practices in the big companies. So I was looking at someone's deck, you know, the other day that's just in the healthcare space, I'll say generally. And slide one was here's who we are. We've been in business since this date and have helped this many thousand customers. You know, and I was just like, okay, this says nothing about the buyer, what their problem is. And there's an enormous number of for those listening, I'm doing air quotes, forward thinking software companies who still start there or they still start with, hey, we're this tool and here's our features. And they just start dumping, right? Without any understanding of like the problem, no storytelling, no painting the picture, all these uh, things that we've talked about, so.
1: It's a very outdated way of showing credibility, right? Yeah. Whereas you can just show credibility to your point by showing that you understand their problem as much if not more than they do and you have a solution for them
0: well you could think about it in very simple terms like let's say you wanted to get i don't know your fence painted you know and one person comes up to your house to give you a quote and says hey good to meet you i'm you know fence painting incorporated we've been in business since 1980 and we'd love to paint your fence and here's a price uh we've done 10 10 customers in this neighborhood and somebody else comes in and walks around the property with you and goes okay great to meet you so why do you want to paint your fence oh you're worried about durability great well if you look here you can see that you get sun in these directions and the weather in the climate is this so you want to consider these factors with paint right like very different conversation and i don't care how long they've been in business they're focused on me and my needs and i'm going to choose that person and that's especially in a world where by the way like in business for 50 years does not necessarily like an often Times is actually viewed as like, oh, are you old and behind the times? Not like, oh, you're credible, you know, are going to do better for us.
1: So we've talked about how Times are, you know, this current economic climate is making things really difficult, especially potential budget cuts or layoffs. What are ways that you have seen that have been most unique that maybe our listeners today could take could take away and bring back to their team? to avoid or present how to avoid this within their own organizations.
0: This is a tough situation. And I think right now, I so- I don't remember who said this. Maybe it was Scott Barker, a return to rigor is the way he presented it. And as an organization, Have you bloated, you know, or maybe lost focus a little bit with such an abundance of capital and so many people sort of saying yes to projects, even if there wasn't clarity of KPIs, when it would get implemented, will it be helpful? You know, people were buying things for maybe nice to haves in the future. As an individual, though, I think there's actually like there's still a lot of opportunity here. And for those people who are impacted by these things, it's an opportunity to look and say, okay, maybe I don't have a full time thing with this company, but What's the outcome they were trying to buy with me at my job, you know, as a full-time employee, how can I maybe even approach that company and deliver it to them on a part-time basis? And then how can I take that outcome and sell that outcome to several people? And maybe now you've got like a little business going for yourself right away where you can turn this for a lot of people, the job that they were complaining about six months ago, how like soul sucking it was now, you know, everybody will like, likes their job more when they don't have it. But um, and turn it into an opportunity to even up-level and, and maybe do the same thing, but in a less, uh, in a more risk-adjusted way and in a way that uh, you can make more money and have more impact and, and potentially scale that, you know, because basically people should be hiring people to buy outcomes, right? Maybe that's looking at it. but I think that's, you know, that's how many business looked at it. So how can you pick that lens to improve, to take this and make it a, an opportunity for yourself?
1: I do find it interesting since you're speaking with so many billion-dollar corporations. A lot of those corporations are doing very strange practices, like forcing employees back to their offices, right? Like for sometimes no other reason just to mandate it. Um, is it? I'd really be curious with your perspective on that because that kind of goes against everything we're talking about here.
0: One thing I guess j- just to like level out from that generally is like we can take the venture markets right now and what's happening. There's this tendency for companies and for all of us as humans to sort of follow the trend and to say, okay, VC firm A is pulling back spending and we take that as a signal that they've got some information. And then so the market tends to follow and it creates the circular outcomes. And just as individuals and you know, as leaders in companies or people contributing to companies or whatever, how can we extrapolate out or take a step back from these macro trends, but say, is this really, you know, just because Microsoft's doing it, is this really going to deliver the outcome that we're trying to create from our company? Or are we just looking and saying, I don't know, this seems to be happening. Or, you know, I personally, as an individual, as a leader like this. So it must be that everyone else should like this also. How do you really take like a first principles view of what's the outcome we're trying to create? How is the world changing? And then Is this really going to be additive or are we just reacting or following suit to other people who are making decisions for reasons that we may not fully understand either and based on variables that we may not fully understand? I'm seeing that a lot with boards right now. I'm seeing that a lot with VC firms. They're making very reactionary decisions. Yeah, I think just how can we take a first principles look at like, what are we actually trying to game with the outcome here? Are these decisions really leading to that outcome or are we just following the the trend of what other people are doing?
1: So what would you say if someone takes your course, um, what would be, if there was only one thing they could take away with from it, what would you want that?
0: You need to be really obsessed with who are you selling to? How do you get specificity around the jobs that they have to do? It's not a job title thing, right? Like job titles, we all know, like you could be a VP of marketing in a startup and that basically means you're the only marketing person or you could be a VP marketing at Salesforce and it means you've got like, you know, I don't know, whatever, 100 people reporting to you the titles really don't mean a lot what matters is who are the people doing these jobs and then what are the pains around them and how do you learn how to speak that language how do they describe it what does it look like how do they view the world especially now people are very educated right in markets like they understand what the available options are generally the cat the leaders the followers they have some sense of it and they have some anchor You know, this is a well-established psychological thing called anchoring bias that once people have sort of established a a position in their mind, even in the face of overwhelming evidence, it's almost impossible to get people to change their minds. And so building that up front, right, and like having clarity around who these people are so that you can build that anchoring bias to you and not to somebody else is what's going to help you create the outcomes.
1: Well, I... I enjoyed your perspective. I think that you are definitely approaching things from a buyer-centric point of view, which I know a lot of people talk about, but not a lot of people employ. Brendan, if people were to want to find out more about your master class or to connect with you, where could they find you?
0: Uh, they can do com as my website. I'm on LinkedIn, Brendan Dell. Instagram is the Brendan Dell. And my podcast is Billion Dollar Tech, which is everywhere podcasts exist.
1: Love it. Brendan, really thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.